Radio Drome. It is the 67th episode of Radio Drome. My God, I can't believe we lasted this long. Special guest Mike White, or I should say one of my special guests, Mike White. Do you remember when you were on like episode 15 or something? I never thought you'd last till 16. Well, not with you on, no. <laughs> and I'll introduce. I figured I'd be the killer. <laughs> I'll introduce our other special guest in a moment. But we got to get the Adam and Eve promo out of the way. Now, Mike, on your show, The Projection Booth, you also have Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve as a sponsor. Do you remember what you get when you use, in this case, the promo code DROME? I believe that you get 50% off nearly any one item at adamandeve.com, plus you get free shipping, plus three free DVDs, and is there something else? A free mystery gift. Oh, free mystery gift. So probably some lube or something. Probably. All for using the promo code DROME. Over at adamandeve.com. DROME, as in radio, DROME. Or video. Or video. And then our other guest is my friend Fred Fritz from the Erase Rewind podcast and his really kick-ass new video show, Movie Apocalypse. Hey, Fred. Hey, how's it going, guys? Tonight's topic is going to be cult movies, and I actually I wanted you two on here specifically because, Mike, you used to put out a magazine about cult movies, and your podcast, The Projection Booth, is all about cult movies. And, Fred, we've had I don't know how many hours worth of conversations <laughs> just about cult movies just talking amongst ourselves, so you guys are as close to we're going to get as experts on cult movies. What would be your description of what a cult movie is in general to someone who may not know? Well, obviously, this is difficult because the definition has kind of changed over the years. But when I was growing up, and this is the one I still stick to, it's basically, it, it can be a bigger film. Let's just get that out of the way. But it, they're generally smaller films that had limited releases and has been seen by a very small group of people. But this small group is generally very devout followers of the film. They will tell anybody and everybody about it as much as they can. But no matter how much they talk about it, the film never seems to get beyond that group. Hence, the, they're kind of a cult. You know, they're very devoted to it. They they follow it constantly. And they're generally people that are trying to, in some way, further it. Maybe as a sequel, a series, or get a better release on DVD, Blu-ray now, whatever it might be. Given that description, which is a very accurate description, why do you think cult films remain cult films? Because as Fred pointed out, they tend to not be big films, although there have been exceptions otherwise. Why do either of you guys actually think these films never go beyond their cult audience when they clearly speak to a certain segment of the population? They can transcend their original audience, usually through word of mouth. And usually, at least has been my experience, people want to share them. They don't want them to necessarily be long to a you know, very small group. They want to kind of share that thing. I mean, there's always the danger of the cool group that you like getting, you know, nationally recognized kind of thing. You know, I used to like this band before you knew who they were. But uh, when it comes to movies, really like a particular film a lot, want to share that and want to really bring it out to a wide audience. And usually the movies, and I know I'm rambling a little bit, usually the movies are of such taste that there's no chance that they could get a really wide following, something that's, you know, just, it's always going to have an element that kind of is off-putting to mainstream audiences. 
Because I know one thing that always shocks me is when I see a cult film referenced in some really, really mainstream way, such as when heavy metal was referenced on South Park. And I just went, okay, I understand South Park's audience. I'm not sure how many of them have ever actually sat through 1981's heavy metal. Yeah, uh, well, I, I wouldn't uh, disagree. I mean, it, it, it therein lies part of the problem where this is a little difficult because, again, what some people call a cult film, the Rocky Horror Picture Show versus its sequel, Shock Treatment, I think is a really great example of how strange this can get. Uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show, of course, became a huge cult phenomenon. And I won't call it the original cult phenomenon, but it's definitely probably one of the first that that sort of you know, breached. You know, it, it did spill over into the pop culture of the mainstream a bit. And it got exposure off of MTV. And, you know, it started, of course, in its midnight showings. It hit MTV and then it, it hit the youth culture. Uh, it was something more popular around colleges. Whereas Shock Treatment is sort of an indirect sequel of it it's never breached you know it's it's still very much it has a very devout following but as mike already pointed out there's an element or two that prohibit it from going any further there's something about it that just it never can go past that audience um and if i may i, I talked with a, a gentleman who runs a show called good bad flicks on my show cecil trachenberg and one thing we've noticed among even among cult fans is there does tend to be a bit of a of a snobbery on certain titles and they actually start to kind of keep it to themselves and only want their group they they only want it among their group they're afraid it'll go mainstream or be exploited in a larger way so it, it's a it's an odd thing well mike i would say that's kind of the actual reason you started the projection booth isn't it to get these films out of that little box yeah, you know, it's it's weird because so much of the time, I mean, it's funny that, that Fred is bringing up the Rocky Horror Picture Show and Shock Dreaming because I was actually just thinking about that a little earlier. I was listening to an interview with uh, Barry Boswick over on um, uh, the movie Geeks United show and thinking about well, how manufactured Shock Dreaming was to become a cult movie and it kind of missed the mark. Be almost because of that, because it was just like, hey, here's a spot where you can shout out profanities kind of thing, you know, and it was just kind of handing people this kind of thing. And then I think about something much later on, however many decades later, something like a Napoleon Dynamite, which I don't think ever would have gotten the press that it had and the play that it had had it not had mtv behind it and had it not had really the internet behind it and it's just so different the way that you know the media has changed so much that you really you know th there is no there still can be movies where you really have to get the word of mouth out there and all that kind of stuff but you know there are blogs there are podcasts there are people talking about films a lot yeah, I'm a little bit deeper into what some of the older films were. Meanwhile, films like uh, The Room, you know, they're just getting widespread acclaim and there's no stopping them. But that would almost be under like a, a skewer kind of header, though, wouldn't it? I mean, The Room isn't necessarily beloved in a way. I think that that one's more of a mocking sense where, say, Rocky Horror, they're not mocking it. They're they're totally loving it. That's very I true. I would say, well, and you brought up an interesting about the, the idea of a manufactured cult film, 
because mm-hmm. that's something we're seeing a lot of today. In fact, it's becoming, a, a, well, there's companies dedicated to it. Asylum and, is, is a great example. And I have to say, I really hate the manufactured cult films. I, you know, the ones that aim for the B status intentionally. And as you said, oh, here's the beat for this. Here's the beat for that. And they're just, there's something lacking in those. They, they never seem to really be able to, I, I shouldn't say never, but you know, there's a, what's the, I, I'm going to get the last, the lost skeleton, lost skeleton, skeleton of Cadavera. Like a cadaver, right. It's cadaver. I think you're right. And I know there are people that like that one. I don't, I, I just didn't enjoy it. It was so forced and every beat was like, oh, here's something else weird ha 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 and to me that's not it you can't manufacture a following i know this will seem like a very odd example but uh the uh, the primetime shows uh, that used to be very popular say like a seinfeld for instance uh they would have those those certain episodes that really caught on with people and of course those were unintentional you know they would catch on and become very large and then say if they took place on a certain day like a holiday like a thanksgiving the next thanksgiving you'd see NBC, they'd say, and make sure to check into check out our next Thanksgiving episode, destined to become a classic. And you can't do that. It's the same mentality. You can't manufacture a classic. You can't manufacture a cult classic. These these films that are in these directors, they're in their own little world. Uh, Ed Wood, of course, is one of the best examples. You know, with Plan Nine from Outer Space. Like I can't think of another one. There's a film called Wizard of Speed and Time by uh mike jetlove which is a wonderful little cult brilliant classic. movie yeah wonderful little cult classic stop motion animation but these films exist in their own world which is in the director's head and to them it was the right choices you know they weren't setting out to make cult classics that was just what they wrote you cannot make a cult film a cult film happens i know i know that we're probably splitting hairs here but to me there's a difference between making it and it happening. Mike said off mic that he was just having a conversation about this very topic just the other day, didn't you, Mike? Yeah, we, I was uh, having a conversation with uh, with Stuart, uh, well, feedback from uh, the Room Work podcast about the sci-fi movies, you know, the movies that are play on the sci-fi channel. And just, you know, there are these outrageous, you know, Sharktopus, uh, Two-Headed Shark, all these kind of, you know, bizarre films and stuff. And really... They don't have any kind of real passion behind them, and there's no like subtext going on. I mean, the, one of the things that I really enjoy about all the films that we've mentioned so far, you know, Rocky Horror and something like an El Topo or an Eraserhead or, or any of these things, is that there's more going on than just what you're seeing on the surface. Or even, you know, Plan 9, you can look at these things as being, you know, kind of metaphors for other things. And there's nothing like that going on in these sci-fi films, which is really unfortunate. You know, one of the things I pointed to when I was talking to Stuart was um, Dire Wolf by Fred Olin Ray. And in Dire Wolf, it's like pretty typical, you know, uh, werewolf kind of, not a werewolf, but a, you know, killer wolf coming, blah, 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 blah. And, but there's this great, running gag going on that's not really being forced on the audience's throat at all but it's this whole thing about how the sheriff uh max caulfield from uh greece 2 talk about manufactured cult film um 
that he's completely OCD and like he um, has to have everything on his desk just right and that he you know takes all day to polish his badge and all this kind of stuff. Completely throwaway thing, but it just really enriches the film so much. And they just really miss the boat on so many of these run-of-the-mill sci-fi films where it's like, what kind of weird creatures can we put in here and not really pay attention to anything else going on? Which is really sad because I know so many of those are being put out by like Roger Corman's company. And he was kind of the king of here's this, what looks like a B movie, but there's so much other, other stuff going on under the surface. So. Well, and then to me, like the asylum and the sci-fi channel movies, even going beyond the manufactured to me, at least they feel just assembly line. They just, mm-hmm. they, you know, they're churned out one after the other. They shoot a lot of these things, even though they're not sequels to one another, back to back to back. These things, they're just on an assembly line. No one really cares. The best cult films to me are the ones where somebody behind the scenes, they really cared to get that out. Not, we need product, get this out. Well, that's and that's exactly what I was talking about earlier about with groups like Asylum, and they've robbed the joy of what these films used to be. I'm not talking about like oh, leave my niche alone, you know. It's that, but they are appealing to a market that's appeared. I think that the internet is what created a group like Asylum because people are the they're embracing bad movies now. There's an actual attempt not to even just make cult films, but to make bad cult films. Oh, it's so bad, it's good. And again, you you might stumble accidentally into that because you might have a writer that's actually funny and put some genuine wit. But if you look at these films, they never go beyond their premise. And this is what I think ties into Mike, what he was calling throwaway. I would actually just say they're character moments. They're, they're defined, they're elements that define the characters, that make the characters three dimensional. They come to life. You look at the asylum films, that's not the way they are. Their idea of making a cult film is look, we got Tiffany and Debbie Gibson together. You know, that might be great for a Royal Rumble, you know, for a headline, but it doesn't make much of a story. And that's the problem with these films today. I, you know, when I think cult film, and something I love, I genuinely love. I think of a movie like, and I'm going to actually be reviewing this on uh, on my secondary show coming up soon, but it's uh, Sundown, The Vampire in Retreat. Uh, this Bruce was, Campbell and David Carradine, yes. Yeah, Anthony Hickok's directed film. It's actually one of my favorites of Anthony Hickok's. And when people know any of his work, they generally know one of two films. They know Waxworks or they know Hellraiser 3. Sundown barely like i think anthony hickox said this film wasn't released it escaped uh it never got a theatrical release the vhs was pathetic and they barely printed those the few people that saw it even in that pathetic vhs format which was cropped horribly cropped they barely even used pan and scan so characters are not even framed right it's it's still gar- garnered like a fan base you know despite all these flaws in the way it was presented there was something people saw there. You know what I mean? They went beyond the quality of the presentation and saw what was underneath, the heart, the intent, the characters. Uh, Mike and I just discussed Mean Guns on his own show. Another film presented horribly. It's terribly cropped on VHS. 
also people went beyond what they saw in the presentation and said there's something more here and that's really what it is it's in the writing it's completely in the writing well it's it's in the writing and it's also in the passion i mean i think one of the things that we've kind of hit on here is talking about these directors who really have this kind of i won't say singular vision but just who have this kind of drive behind them i mean Hickox was making these films very, you know, against all odds. I mean, we did talk about Pune, again, very against all odds, constantly having pictures taken away from him. Uh, you know, I had mentioned Eraserhead and El Topo. I mean, we've mm -hmm. got, you know, nobody's got a vision more singular than a Jodorowsky, and you can probably make the same argument for Lynch. And then even back to Ed Wood. I mean, we were talking about some very passionate people making films that they feel that they really need to get out and, you know, express themselves through this medium. And I think that's something that we're really missing with some of these other films where it's like, I think people are gravitate towards that passion. They see that kind of stuff. Sometimes it's misdirected, but you know, it still comes through and people can kind of, you know, get that sense to themselves and, you know, latch on to that film as this speaks to me. I don't know why sometimes this movie really speaks to me as much as it does, but it does. And that's why I want to be a part of this experience. It, it's sort of like comfort food in a way. So, certain films, maybe they just revitalize a moment in your life. Or like you said, you just, you just gravitate towards it for whatever that reason might be. You gravitate towards it and it becomes sort of like a comfort food, something you, you feel safe to return to. Going to the big budget cult film, and I don't know if this film was, I kind of get the feeling it was designed to be a cult film, but they wanted it to be a big box office success too, and that would be the 1980 Flash Gordon. That film has cult film written all over it, but at the same time, they threw so much money at it. I, I don't know, would you call that a manufactured cult film? Because that's one of those movies that is, is very much like Fred put it, a comfort film, but it's an awesome movie too. <laughs> If I can just argue on the point, I would say no, only because, again, this is back to the idea of certain films, I think, live in people's minds, okay? And people are in their own world. Dino De Laurentiis as a producer is well known for a man who lived in his own head. <laughs> and he he really wanted to kind of bring out that Italian style of filmmaking and bring it to America. So I don't think he was trying to manufacture as much as he just had a vision and he really thought, hey, let's let's mix what's common in a, a European country with something that's as American as apple pie, Flash Gordon. And it was just an odd mix. You know, the cast was an odd mix. Everything about that film is odd. I don't think it was manufactured, though. I mean, Queen was brought in. I don't think they hired Queen because, hey, that's a odd choice. <laughs> they were just really big. I think that was just one of those things where he thought he was going to bring a little European sensibility to America. And it, I love Flash Gordon, by the way. I hope it doesn't sound like I'm being negative. I love that film. I just don't think I would say that one was manufactured in person. Now, there have, been other, there have been other missteps that have kind of become cult films. I mean, something like Myra Breckenridge, where it's based on this you know, popular book. And, you know, it just everything came together completely the wrong way. And it that is to me one of those so bad it's good, you know. Counter counterpoint that with something you know made in a similar era of uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, 
to me, those are both cult films, but for both very different reasons. One, you know, the studio thought, hey, we're going to cash in on this youth market. Well, actually, I think both. The, the, the studio thought we were going to cash in on this youth market. And, you know, one filmmaker was kind of, you know, at the mercy of the the studio and the other one is you know i'm going to do whatever i want because i'm russ meyer and i have this vision of what i want to do and he went ahead and did that with 20th century fox's money but you know the very very different results but still you uh have different cult followings around those well and then i can think of one of what i think of is absolutely one of the most brilliant films ever made was a huge budget studio production that had cult film written all over it and that's Brazil. There's no way Fox could have ever thought that was going to be a mainstream movie. <laughs> that, that, was a, that was destined to be a cult film. There's no way they ever were, were mistaking that this was going to be a mainstream success. Well, I would say with all of the, the problems and the recuts and all that kind of stuff, I think somewhere somebody along the line became deluded and thought that they could salvage it and make it into more of a mainstream mainstream thing if they gave it the happy ending and all that kind of malarkey. But, I mean, they were completely deluded to think that. This is an unusual time because, as, as Josh, you and I have talked about this in length, off, camera, or off mic, that the 80s was a time when there was more variety available to people than ever, okay? And that includes now. You know, before and now, there was every genre of film being made. There was every form of science fiction, horror, and, you know, you, that's when you really start to see the blending, too. You know, sci-fi, horror, and thriller comedies. And it, it, there was just the home video market had opened up this need, this this hunger. And I think with, what happened is it, this is when you start to see the mainstream, quote-unquote, cult directors really began to thrive. Guys like David Lynch... Terry Gilliam technically should have never survived the Hollywood studio. You know what I mean? The Hollywood system. But somehow they did. And, you know, Gilliam's Time Bandits, which was, you know, produced by, was a, Brit a British produced film, but still found a following in America. So I think back then there was just more variety and there was more opportunity for, shall we say, odd, peculiar films. It's just that, like you said about Brazil, there was so much tampering. We can never know how audiences would have reacted to it because they never saw it, you know, up until years later. So, and then of course, by that time, the, the story behind Brazil was more famous than Brazil. But you also then have these cult films. And I, I, this next one I'm going to bring up, I don't even know if I'd call this a cult film or just sort of a surprise hit. And that would be like something like the legend of Boggy Creek. When that came out in 73, this was a little like $200,000 film that was the third highest grossing film of the year. It beat everything else except for two other movies. The people that made Boggy Creek just, they hit a nerve with Bigfoot in 73, or it, that was more of a fluke? I would say that they actually did hit a little bit of a nerve. I mean, this was coming pretty quickly, I believe. It's funny because I'm reading that Dave Coleman book right now about uh, the Sydney du, du Sasquatch, as he calls it. And it, 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 that's right there in the, the intro to his book. He's talking about Boggy Creek and how it really did break all these records. And it was pretty close to when, and I forget 
what the name of the guy was who shot the footage, the infamous footage of Bigfoot that you see all the time, you know, the, the 16 second yes. yeah. reel or whatever. Yeah. And it seemed like they were really kind of cashing in on that. And then also just how weird the seventies were at the same time. But I think cryptozoology was really kind of a very, you know, hot topic at the time. And then I also think mm-hmm. that it was kind of a, a road show too. You know, the, the guy who made Boggy Creek would take it around and, you know, like talk about it and really kind of had that grassroots support, which again is something that you kind of get nowadays. You know, you do get things opening up in different, you know, theaters here and there. And, but that's smaller films. You don't get that coming out of Hollywood. You know, you get that quick, you know, one week window, if you're lucky of a film coming out and, you know, here and gone. And if you missed it, sorry about it. And then you have something along the lines of, like, They Live. They Live, which was, what, two, three million dollar film, something like that, in 88? Just beat everybody. But yet, <laughs> They Live, I think, is a great film, and it's a brilliantly subversive film. But at the same time, by Carpenter's own admission, he sort of made it for that smaller cult audience. So I don't even know if you'd call that a manufactured cult film, or if Carpenter just knew his audience that would appreciate they live. And he knew this when he made it, he said he never knew it was going to be the success. It was, he made a small little movie that turned out to be a small, big little movie. Well, I I would say that it falls under the classic concept of you can know what a person might be thinking. You can never know what people are thinking. And, and that's sort of what we're hitting upon here uh, in response to they live. And again, I'm going to make one of those weird logic leaps, but again, you see this is, this weird fascination with My Little Pony right now. No one could have predicted that, okay? No one. It hit, it hit on its own, and it's solely based on audiences. With They Live, you and I talked about this, Josh, on the John Carpenter retrospect. John thought in his mind, again, this is, you know, he's only one person, and he only thinks with one mind. And in his worldview, he thought, this one way. So when he made it, he was thinking, okay, very few people are going to agree with this point of view. And as we pointed out, the odd thing is, is that he didn't count on that. Actually, a lot of people were thinking that way. Uh, they just thought about it in different terms. So when one group sees the film, they think, ah, the, the aliens are the Democrats, but the other group sees, ah, the aliens are the Republicans, you know, that's because it shows how much we're actually all alike ironically uh he just in his own mindset he had had so many disasters prior he was probably starting to think well the way i make movies can only appeal to a small audience and it just so happened he had a nerve i remember when i read early issues of your magazine cashews to cinemart plug plug they're now on kindle i believe Yes, they are slowly making their way out, and there should be a new uh, episode or issue, sorry, by the end of uh, 2012. And I I wrote a nice, big, long-ass article in the final large print issue of that, which I think was 15, 14, 15. So you guys might want to look up that plug plug. I remember reading in numerous issues when I was picking that up, you were almost obsessed with the movie Black Shampoo. (laughs) <laughs> so what is it about a movie like Black Shampoo that – and I'm not saying it's obsessed in an offensive way, Mike. I'm just saying oh, no. you, you wrote about it all the time. So what drew you to, to a specific film like Black Shampoo? Well, for me, it was kind of the friendship thing. I mean, I saw that film amongst friends the very first time, and it 
as I was saying, you know, I think the very um, opening of the show, that's one of those that we tried to share with as many people as we possibly could. And, you know, I kind of took it upon myself when uh, I started writing the magazine. It's like, hey, I've got the pulpit here. Let's go ahead and try to, you know, spread the word even more. So I was always looking for reasons to write about it and just kind of get the word out to as many people as I possibly could. Because it was something that just, you know, it, it always brought back warm feelings of watching movies with your friends and just kind of, you know, kicking back and relaxing. And that's really what so many movies that I even write about today and that really have this kind of, you know, cult appeal for me, you know, kind of bring back or they're the movies that I remember enjoying with an audience, be it my close knit group of friends from high school, buddies from college, or, you know, having this kind of communal experience with an audience. I mean, going to see Rocky Horror the first time was just, you know, kind of mind blowing for me. I'd never been in a theater where people were talking back to the screen and actually, you know, engaging with the people on on screen because I had always been, you know, very proper, quiet moviegoer. So having that kind of communal thing and having everyone there so engaged in the movie really kind of blew my mind. Which also goes back to the projection booth episode you, Chris Gore, and I did on the, the porno Night Dreams, which Brad has reviewed so his audience will know the movie, where that film was such a cult film, I, I can't imagine what it was like in 1981 to walk into that movie thinking you were just getting spank bank material and walking out going, that's the strangest thing I've ever seen in my entire goddamn life. <laughs> I, I can't think of a certain experience where I've gone into a movie not knowing what it was going to be and walked out going, that was bizarre. Can you think of a movie that you did that to that just it snuck up on you and stuck its fangs in your neck? I drove over an hour to go see Wizard of Speed and Time for the first time in Florida. So I, I've always sort of sought out offbeat cinema, you know, uh, because if if I can throw a little psychology into this, that I think something that we're, we're, we're kind of dancing around is the notion of being surprised in a movie and you know you talk about something jumps up and sticks its fangs in you and we get conditioned to a certain types of movies you know when we go see them and we know the beats even if we're not thinking about the beats we become sort of conditioned to them okay here comes the car chase here comes the the big dramatic confrontation here comes the revelation here and then cult films tend to break those those chains so it's really any film that kind of does that. Uh, for me, like I'm a big fan of like David Mamet and John Sayles' early work. And when I discovered their stuff, when I saw House of Games, it literally changed my perception of what a movie thriller should be. Uh, when I was very young when I saw House of Games, David Mamet's House of Games. And it, that's the kind of thing that it, it doesn't have to necessarily be cult it just has to be something that does something so dramatically different from the rest that it offsets you a bit you know um sort of like we see the hero lives in the end and then you see a movie like to live and die in la and boom the hero gets his face blown off with a shotgun there's something that jumps up and catches you for me that's a little more difficult i've never really walked out of something just i, I go to the movies always hoping for that i guess for me it's the opposite like i'm always it bugs me to be so disappointed. 
is what I'm trying to say. You know, it's like, I want to, I go there, please surprise me. Please give me something I wasn't expecting. And that's the problem. They, you don't get that as much. And unfortunately, most of my biggest surprises were not in the theater. They were VHSs. Well, when that also brings up your whole psychology angle, a movie like Grindhouse. Now, keep in mind, I loved, I loved Grindhouse for, for what it was. But the fact that that movie failed so hard at the box office leads me to believe. I mean, and then the fact that people were even walking out after Planet Terror, not realizing that there was a whole other feature after it, that sort of implies to me the modern movie going audience has lost the whole concept of a cult film or even like the Grindhouse thing. And we can even argue that Grindhouse was a manufactured cult film, whether you agree it failed or not. What do you think about, like, the Grindhouse's failure? Do you think we've lost the connection with the modern movie-going audience of what a cult film is? Or just, for whatever reason, that film just didn't find an audience? I don't really say about Grindhouse. I mean, because I, I really I enjoyed the first half of it so much, and I really was... I was looking forward to having this kind of, you know... Um, experience of going back in time a little bit and seeing a double feature and all this kind of stuff. But it was just so manufactured and everything. It was just, it kind of hurt. I mean, but I, I enjoyed the first half of it a lot. I thought it was very clever. I love the way that, um, Rodriguez, you know, kind of utilized the bad film kind of stuff, you know, as far as like, you know, the skips and the, you know, anytime there's a real change, you would miss a little bit and the scratches on the film and everything and, and actually missing a whole, it felt like a miss, there was a whole reel that was gone out of the film and everything. And I thought that was great. And then you come to the second film and there's a little bit of scratchiness to the first maybe five, 10 minutes. And then it loses that and it just kind of us as far as what, a, you know, a, a cult film, a grindhouse film was supposed to be. So I'm not, I'm probably not the best person to ask about this since it does have uh, so many connections to Tarantino. So, and yeah, you, uh, anyone who listens to Mike's very first episode of Radiodrome, you know, his connection with Tarantino. So. And everyone knows my hatred of Tarantino. Well, that, that's interesting because when I saw the trailer for Grindhouse, I remember thinking, yeah, I'll never watch this. That was my first thought. And again, remember I said earlier, I'm the guy that seeks out unusual entertainment. And it was right off the bat. It didn't appeal. I was like, it looked manufactured. They were trying too hard. And the images you were seeing in the trailer literally just it, it felt like somebody was taking a spike to my head, you know, and hammering it and going, does that hurt? Ding! Does that hurt? Ding! That's the problem. And I think the funny thing is with Planet Terror, and Mike even just said, you know, the first half, which is Planet Terror, was pretty good. That's the funny thing. When I watched it, I was shocked. I rather enjoyed Planet Terror. The problem is, is that it was trying so hard to be that, sh- like, cult film that it has a lot of missteps in it. It was actually a better movie than it was supposed to be. And every so often, they just threw in this weird shock because, oh, it's a cult film. Oh, it's a shocking grindhouse film. Oh, we're going to shock you. The funny thing is that the product was too good. And it was too interesting. I mean, there was actually a 
a character in Rose McGowan. There was actually a character with, uh, is it Freddy? Uh, uh, oh, no, I forgot his name already. Rodriguez. Rodriguez Thank you. Yeah. Fre Freddy Rodriguez. That wasn't bad. And then Michael Bean and Jeff Fahey practically. Uh, but then they throw in those moments where you can, I swear you can hear Quentin Tarantino's voice like saying, yeah, and I'm going to try to rape this girl and my testicles melt off. And that stuff feels forced. It's just, it's like you're moving along and then all of a sudden shock. And it's, it's like, okay, you know, uh, so many beats for the bar, you know, uh, it just felt like it was forced. And I really think that's what killed it in all honesty. I think that the one was really good and they tried to force crap into it to make it seem like Grand House. And then the other was quite frankly, very mediocre and would have been direct to video under any other circumstance. But what about the aspect that people all across the country, the first two weeks it was open, left after Planet Terror because they couldn't understand the concept of a double feature? And I know we've kind of moved from cult to grindhouse and, you know, the whole genre in this, but it's almost like they just didn't realize that, yes, you actually can get two movies for one ticket. That people That's bad left. advertising. That's just bad advertising. Though. Yeah, I tend to agree. All right. Well, what about going back to another projection booth episode, Mike, with the visitor? I mean, when I, and I remember when I sent that to you, you were just floored, not only at how good it was, but that you'd never heard of it before me. Right. That was, to me, the definition of a cult film. This is a film I grew up with. I've got original posters hanging on my wall. I've got the original VH, two different VHS releases, and yet I'm the only one I knew that had ever seen this movie before I was the one spreading it around, like Patient Zero and <laughs> And don't you feel good about being able to spread the disease, as it were? When it's something as awesome as The Visitor, when you get to see Lance Henriksen verbally sparring with John Huston while Shelley Winters is smacking around a little demon child with phantasm spheres in her eyes, yes, I do. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's, that's to your question about Black Shampoo. That's what I love. You know, I love being able to kind of spread the gospel a little bit and say, look, at there's this awesome thing that you really need to know about. I mean, you know, I've done... We're going back to what Fred was saying about being surprised. I mean, <laughs> I had the very fortunate weekend of being able to go see the American astronaut on one night and the world's greatest sinner on the next night. I mean, talk about being surprised. You know, I, I walked into the theater thinking, okay, this is going to be a little different. You know, I'd seen some of Corey's work before, I'd seen Timothy Carey, you know, acting before. And these movies just completely took me by surprise. And so it's just like, I, I completely understand where Fred's coming from as far as, you know, take take me someplace where I haven't been before. You know, I did think of one film, by the way, Josh, finally, that did actually catch complete. Uh, and that was Richard Elfman's Forbidden Zone. This was a film that I rented solely because I loved the group Boingo Boingo. And it had Danny Elfman right out there on the cover. And then I saw the name Richard Elfman directed, written, directed. And I said, well, obviously related. <laughs> and I knew nothing about the film. There's a film I can honestly say I was shocked <laughs> when I watched it. That was As you should have been. Times. Yeah, as you yeah. should have been shocked when you watched it. That one comes at you from about 40 different directions. And there's a film that I think if you want to talk 
the definition of a film that became a cult film because it's never going to become bigger. You know, I mean, it can't. It's too, well, first of all, it's really too dirty. You know, I don't even recommend it to people because it's just, like I said, I saw it and I was shocked. But there is something shockingly charming about that film. Uh, I don't know if it's just because it's so strange or it has the music in it, but it's it was the very definition of what you talk about when you say jumped up and, and bit me. I I couldn't get the songs out of my head for a week. I was quoting very strange lines from the movie. Um, so there's one I would say definitely fits that particular arena. Well, and then, you know, again, this is one that I, a whole filmmaker that his early work definitely is cult, but look at like John Waters work when he's doing stuff like cry baby. It seems like it's a big budget movie that desperately wants to get cult status. It's just kind of a schizophrenic way to do things. Don't you think? Yeah, I would say he's much more. You know, he he still has cred at that point. I think he's really kind of doing a great thing by taking Johnny Depp, who at the time was just this, uh, you know, such a heartthrob to all these teenage girls. And by putting him in this film, I mean, using him the way that he did, I thought was just great. He's really, he he exposed, I mean, <laughs> there, were, there were girls practically crying that were coming out of that theater after <laughs> seeing this very subversive film. And I would say that that one still was subversive, but there are, are films that he's made since then. I always point to Cecil B. Demented that was just so ham-fisted in the way that it was trying so hard to be shocking, to be cult, to be, you know, I mean, utilizing cult film directors' names as the, the different factions and all this kind of stuff. It was just so poorly handled. So if, if you're going to say that Waters was really trying to, you know, use his old cult ways um, in a much more big budget film, I would definitely point to that one as being uh, the, the number one suspect. I, I was using that as an example of a, a, a former cult a manufactured fi- kind well, of well, and he was a former cult filmmaker that became a big budget potential cult filmmaker. If that makes any sense, right? Well, I think that falls under the David Lynch category too, or even uh, Terry Gilliam again. That it's <sighs> these filmmakers have a mindset, and again, it, I, I don't mean to repeat, but this is what we keep coming to when you talk about these type of directors. I guess the problem is there's certain kinds of scripts, certain kinds of directors and certain kinds of directors live in their own world. Terry Gilliam always lived in his own world. I think it was Eric Idle who said, there's two things you never do. Talk about religion and work for Terry Gilliam. He lives in his own mind. And so therefore the films that come out of him, he's not trying to make bizarre, weird films. He's making the films he wants to see. I think what you get with John Waters, uh, John Waters, perhaps just like Hollywood can't intentionally make a cult film, perhaps someone like John Waters can't intentionally make a mainstream film. You know, it his mind doesn't work that way. And therefore, you end up with a film that's neither fish nor fowl. You might get a success like Serial Mom is actually surprisingly entertaining. That was a film that actually made me laugh. Mm-hmm. But that film will never appeal to a major audience, you know, despite the cast, the budget, the studio behind it, it can never appeal to a large audience. Whereas if I can counter, this is something that I've always found interesting is why doesn't a film like Big Trouble in Little China succeed? 
there's something that always boggled my mind more so. I would say the same thing with Adventures uh, of Buckaroo Banzai. Well, actually, I was leading into that. But yeah, Buckaroo Banzai, though, is kind of a weird film. And I can only see why that one would off-put at least some people. But there's no... Big Trouble in Little China is one of the most accessible, strange films I've ever seen. It's It's funny. It's adventurous. I mean, it's the very definition of the stranger offbeat cinema and mainstream coming together and succeeding. I mean, you've got chases, you've got explosions, you've got all kinds of battles. It's got tons of special effects. It's really funny. And this film bombed huge. And I went looking for it on Blu-ray. I'll never, this was just a few months ago. And I went into Best Buy, you know, do they have it on Blu-ray? And they said, what's the name of it? And this person was like about 22, 23 years old and was just telling me how much they love movies and then did no clue what Big Trouble in Little China was. And to this day, even with its cult status, film is finding a bigger audience. That perplexes me. Big Trouble in Little China probably would have been a hit if it had come out 10 years later. Do you think a cult film has to fail for it to be a cult film? Or do you think it can be a mainstream success and a cult film simultaneously? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm not sure. I'm trying to think of any places where a film was, you know, a success. I mean, I I mean, going all the way back to like some of the you know, the, the earliest cult films, I'm thinking of some of the stuff, you know, of, uh, you know, Derek Jarman and some of that. I mean, those were little films that were fairly successful for what they were. I don't think that they necessarily bombed, but then it took time to find their audience. And I think that's one of the things that we're kind of day and that you're kind of talking about as far as that amount of time between release and when you finally attain that cult status is that it takes a while for that germination to happen. I mean, just going back to that interview with, with Boswick that I heard earlier, you know, he was in Rocky Horror, made the film, went on to the next project, didn't even realize that there was a cult following until, you know, six, seven, eight years later. So I guess there has to be some amount of time, you know, it can't be that, destined to be a cult classic kind of thing. You know, you really do need to give it a little bit of time for a film to kind of gain its legs. But as far as whether it has to be a failure the first time out of the gate, I'm not sure on that one. Well, because it, it, it goes back to when you and I interviewed Paige Connor from The Visitor. Until I contacted her, she had no idea that The Visitor had any kind of legs at all. She was just kind of, it came out, and, you know, I got paid, and I moved on, and I've never heard from it since. And she did not know that there was this huge cult following around it. Or even when we talked to Lance Henriksen, how he was like, of all the movies I've made, that's the one you want to talk to me about? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think sometimes, you know, obviously we're three very big film fans, so we're going to pay a little bit more attention to the folks that are making these things and then moving on to the next gig. If every actor, director, writer, star sat around and had to think about how the movie did, you know, for the weeks, months, and years afterwards, then it would just be quite a different Hollywood system that there, than there is now. Are you saying it would be is... more neurotic than it is now? Uh, <laughs> well, I, I I got one little quick thing to add. Just that, first of all, if you're going to stick to the definition of cult film, 
it, no, it can't ever become big. I don't, I wouldn't say it has to be a failure, but it can never become, because it's not a small, a cult following is a small following. So if you're going to stick to the very definition, no, it can't ever become major mainstream. I think the difference between, you're talking about the difference between cult film and offbeat film there. Cult film is something that happens, whereas an offbeat film can be something that's created. You know, it's, it's just different. But a story I'd just like to say about, again, to finish off on this point that you know, when you talk about Paige Connor not knowing, and you'll notice that's something, again, that comes back to all these type of films. And again, the directors are living in their head. The actors are living in their heads. They often don't know. In fact, if anybody wants to go to YouTube and watch the interviews with the actors from RoboCop, and you will see a movie that no one thought, they, they all thought this was going to be a disaster, um, but had a great time doing it. But a story I love, and I, I, I've, I think I've told it on ER, but I know I haven't told it here as this is my first time, that it all, goes all the way back to the classics uh, with the guys Laurel and Hardy. And uh, this was when they were slightly older. They were asked to make an appearance at a theater in New York and just you know take a bow at the end of their film. And it was advertised that they would be there. Well, they, they arrive and they're, they're in the, uh, the central area of New York, and it's the, it's bumper to bumper traffic and they're afraid they're going to be late. And the taxi driver says, you're going to have to get out and walk for it, guys. We'll never make it. I've never, he says, I didn't expect this. So they walk out and as they're walking, all this mass of people are everywhere. And it's also causing the traffic jam and people spot them and they start, oh my gosh, it's them. And the people start to part. All these people were waiting for them. And they had no clue just how loved they were by people. They had no clue. And they broke out into tears walking all the way to the theater as people were cheering them to them. You know, you can't designate what will touch people's hearts. Okay, you can't. And these people don't know it themselves. They're just doing what they feel is natural or right. Mike, where can we find you normally? Uh, normally I'm hanging out in my mom's basement, um, <laughs> which, which, which must be really awkward for your wife. Yeah. She has to come visit me. So no, normally you can find me, um, hanging out over at, uh, projection dash booth.com or over at, uh, impossible And it actually, um, I, I think pretty soon I'm going to be moderating some sort of board at uh, the mortuary. It's like the-mortuary.com. Uh, I'm not really sure what moderating a board is other than that I have to be really mean to people. So uh, hopefully I can handle that. If you have filling, start chewing on Reynolds wrap. It's about the equivalent. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So where can we find Fred? Well, if you uh, we're getting things organized now, and I'm going to make movieapocalypse.com is going to be your location for all news and episodes. So you can always rely on that blog to find out what I'm doing or what's going on with any of my shows. Also, we've uh, now joined forces with Geek Juice Media, which is uh, you can find us at movieapocalypse.geekjuicemedia.com. So, uh, Movie Apocalypse will be there as well. And then you can also, can, can people find the old Erase Rewind episodes I was on somewhere? 
Yes, they'll also be at... You can find everything at movieapocalypse.com. Everything will be there. We just cleaned it up. The old version was terrible. We have the nice streamlined, clean-looking blog again. And so you can find everything. In fact, I think the last episode is still our Canon Films one. And then you can find me at 1201beyond.com and 1201beyond at gmail.com. And next week, I will announce the winner of the 42nd Street Forever contest. I'm saying good night. You guys want to say good night? Good night. Good night. Sailing on a big ship. Yeah!